This is Dave Perry. In this podcast, I'll examine Christian views on ethics and war. This episode and three others on religion and war are adapted from my book entitled Partly Cloudy, Ethics in War, Espionage, Covert Action, and Interrogation. If you'd like to purchase a copy, go to my website, practicalethicsinstitute.com, where you'll see both a link to my publisher and a code that will give you 30% off the regular price. One question that's been the subject of much debate in the Christian tradition is whether Jesus was a strict pacifist. In other words, whether he prohibited violence absolutely. Some passages in the gospel seem clearly to imply that, but others are more ambiguous. Matthew chapter 5 reports Jesus as saying, You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. If anyone strikes or slaps you on the right cheek, turn and offer him the other also. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Those sayings seem to imply a strict rule of nonviolence and have inspired Christian pacifists for nearly two millennia. Historian John Cadu inferred from such passages that Jesus adopted for himself and enjoined upon his followers principles of conduct which, inasmuch as they ruled out as illicit all use of violence and injury against others, clearly implied the illegitimacy of participation in war. On the other hand, when Jesus spoke with Roman soldiers, as in Luke 7, he did not recommend that they abandon their profession in order to serve God. Now, an argument from silence is logically weak. In other words, the fact that Jesus was never reported to have criticized soldiers as such doesn't entail that he supported their vocation. But it's unclear how Jesus would have reconciled the military profession with non-resistance to evil and love of enemies. The Gospels further portray Jesus as using some degree of intimidation or force to eject the merchants from the temple in Jerusalem, though only in John is Jesus said to have employed a whip, and none of the Gospels says that he struck any person. There's also a story where Jesus seems explicitly to permit his disciples to carry swords, and by implication to use them in self-defense, though that passage appears only in Luke 22 and is very mysterious. The apocalyptic book of Revelation even imagines the returning Christ as a mighty warrior, just in war, and wielding a sharp sword to smite the nations. But how can such passages be squared with Jesus' command, do not resist an evildoer? Similar puzzles emerge from the story of Jesus' arrest. The four Gospels agree that when Jesus was arrested by an armed group, one of the disciples drew a sword and wounded a servant of the high priest. Now that's startling by itself and suggesting that at least one disciple apparently carried a deadly weapon while accompanying Jesus in his ministry, and that Jesus, by implication, did not forbid or discourage that. But the Gospels differ about what was said during that incident, and those differences are, to me, fascinating. So in Mark's version of the story, Jesus says nothing to the disciple who inflicts the wound. Mark's gospel is thought by scholars to be the earliest of the four, and almost certainly familiar to the writers of Matthew and Luke at least, but only Mark's gospel suggests that Jesus was silent at this point. 
perhaps Mark meant to imply that Jesus was rendered speechless at the sight of one of his disciples lashing out violently, but we can't know for sure. In Luke's account, alone among the Gospels, Jesus' disciples first ask him, Lord, should we strike with the sword? But Jesus doesn't respond before one of them cuts the servant's ear off. Perhaps he wasn't given enough time to reply. Then Jesus says simply, stop, no more of that. So in Luke's version, there's only that brief command with no supporting reasons given. It might reflect an abhorrence of violence in general. But we might wonder why Luke's Jesus would permit his disciples to carry swords just a few verses earlier, yet forbid their use here in his defense. In John's version of the arrest, the disciple who uses his sword is said to be Simon Peter, unlike the other Gospels in which he's nameless. John quotes Jesus as saying to Peter, Put your sword back into its sheath. Am I not to drink the cup the Father has given me? So John's focus is on the need to permit Jesus' divine mission to continue, which includes his arrest and crucifixion, not a specific opposition to violence per se. Matthew's version, finally, of Jesus' response is lengthier and more complex than the others. So Matthew says, Suddenly, one of those with Jesus put his hand on his sword, drew it, and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then would the scriptures be fulfilled, which say it must happen in this way? Now note that Jesus gives at least two rationales in Matthew against the disciples' use of his sword. One sounds like a piece of prudential advice. If you don't want to be killed yourself, don't use lethal weapons. But then wouldn't the disciple respond, I'm perfectly willing to die to protect you? The other rationale, like John's, might be restricted to this situation only. The disciple must not interfere with Jesus' mission. We might wonder, though, how the legions of angel reserves in Matthew's version are consistent with pacifism. In light of this puzzling combination of texts, how did the early Christian community answer the question of whether force could ever be morally justified? Many of them seem to have affirmed a dual ethic, one for Christians and another for the state, which during their era was not favorably disposed toward Christianity. I'll use Paul Tertullian of Carthage and Origen of Alexandria primarily to illustrate this point. All three of those influential Christians interpreted Jesus' teaching and example to prohibit all uses of force by Christians, not only in personal self-defense, but apparently even in defense of other innocent people. So Paul wrote in Romans 12, Do not repay anyone evil for evil, but take thought for what is noble in the sight of all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave room for the wrath of God. Over a century after Paul, Tertullian wrote that when Jesus rebuked the disciple who defended him at his arrest, in effect he disarmed every soldier. Tertullian also explained to Roman rulers that Christians believe it's better for them to be killed than to kill, and that they may never retaliate if injured by others. And Tertullian stipulated that when soldiers convert to Christianity, they must leave the military, asking rhetorically, shall Christians be allowed to make an occupation of the sword when the Lord proclaims that he who uses the sword shall perish by the sword? 
Compare the equally strict precepts stipulated by another contemporary, Hippolytus of Rome, who wrote, A soldier in the lower ranks shall kill no one. If ordered to do so, he shall not obey. A member of the faithful who wants to join the army should be dismissed because he's shown contempt for God. Origen of Alexandria also claimed that Jesus prohibited homicide, so Christians may never kill for any reason. Origen wrote, He nowhere teaches that it's right for his own disciples to offer violence to anyone, however wicked. And he urged his readers, We must beware of unsheathing the sword simply because we are in the, in the army or for the sake of avenging private injuries or under any other pretext because Christ's teachings in the Gospels considers all these uses an abomination. But all three of those early Christians, Paul, Tertullian, and Origen, in spite of their apparently pacifist stances, also thought that God authorized the state to use lethal force for certain purposes. Paul wrote in Romans 13, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those authorities that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Do you wish to have no fear of the authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive its approval, for it's God's servant for your good. But if you do what's wrong, you should be afraid, for the authority does not bear the sword in vain. It is the servant of God to execute wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, I find it hard to conceive of a more conservative political philosophy than the one suggested here by Paul. Indeed, since he was himself persecuted by Roman authorities and knew that Jesus was executed by them, it's difficult to imagine him sincerely believing that rulers are never a terror to good conduct. But influential Christians like Augustine later, who have cited Romans 13 approvingly, typically don't ponder such questions. And Paul's words sadly served for many centuries as a kind of proof text for the divine right of kings in Europe, and thus, ironically, as a rationale for arbitrary royal power and tyranny. Tertullian, in puzzling contrast to his strict pacifist sayings noted earlier, also wrote, We Christians pray for security to the empire, for protection of the imperial house, for brave armies. Similarly, Origen claimed that although Christians won't serve in the military, they offer prayers to God on behalf of those who are fighting in a righteous cause, that whatever is opposed to those who act righteously may be destroyed. So clearly to me, the combination of views that I've drawn from Paul, Tertullian, and Origen is logically inconsistent. It's not possible to rule out killing entirely and then permit it on the part of the state. But it's important to recognize that those authors apparently thought strict pacifism to be the only acceptable ethic for followers of Jesus. In light of their witness, no contemporary Christians should simply assume that Jesus clearly approved of the use of violence, even in defense of the innocent. Killing enemies to protect one's family, community, or nation might in fact be morally justified, perhaps on non-religious grounds, but doing so may well contradict the ethic of Jesus. However, a significant shift in Christian thinking about war occurred in the 4th and 5th centuries after the Emperor Constantine began to use the Roman state to support the church. According to an influential bishop named Eusebius, 
absolute nonviolence was from then on to apply solely to clergy, monks, and nuns. Lay Christians could now be obligated to, to defend the empire with force. Ambrose, another important bishop of that era, thought that Christian love entailed a duty to use force to defend innocent third parties. He also shifted the focus of Christian moral concern from the act of violence to the attitude of the agent. So Christian soldiers should love their enemies even while using deadly force against them. Psychological state that I doubt is really possible, especially in close combat. In effect, Ambrose baptized ancient Roman patriotism and the military virtues of courage, fortitude, and honor to encourage Christians to inculcate them. Augustine, who was influenced by Ambrose in many ways, recognized that Jesus had taught things that seemed to entail strict nonviolence, but like Ambrose, he believed that they applied to dispositions rather than to actions. Christians, in Augustine's view, are not only permitted to use force in defense of the community, they're obligated to obey such orders from higher authorities. Tragically, he also came to accept the use of force against heresy, believing it to be consistent with a benevolent desire of the church to correct its wayward children. He thereby reinforced Christian intolerance and violence that had begun under Constantine and would infect Europe for over a thousand years, fomenting inquisitions, crusades, and pogroms. But Ambrose and Augustine also believed that there should be moral limits on Christian uses of violence, even in cases where Augustine considered war to be the lesser of evils. He regarded all killing as ultimately tragic, always requiring an attitude of mourning and regret on the part of Christians. Partly due to his influence, throughout most of the medieval period, killing in war was considered a very serious sin. According to Bernard, Bernard Verkamp, if a Christian soldier killed an enemy soldier, even in a war that his bishops had deemed to be just, he would have to do penance for the killing, often by fasting and prayer for a year or more. James Turner Johnson has written that Christian roots of the modern principle of non-combatant immunity also developed in the medieval period, when secular military ideals of chivalry combined with Christian decrees of protection for clergy, peasants, women, and others who usually didn't take part in combat. Thomas Aquinas added another important ethical consideration in stipulating that Christians may use only the minimal force ne necessary to save lives from unjust attack, an early version of the use in bellow principle of proportionality. As noted by Roland Bainton, the medieval period also witnessed the emergence of total war in the name of Christianity. First, there was increasing glorification of the Christian knight and growing identification of military courage and honor with Christian virtue, though that originated with Ambrose, as I indicated earlier. Now, uh, military courage and honor can help to reinforce limits on war conduct, for example, in protecting non-combatants from gratuitous harm. Recall the professional ethic of the Hindu warrior caste. But many of the traditional restraints on war advocated by the church started to erode in the medieval period. In the ninth century, the Vatican declared that death in battle could be spiritually beneficial for Christian soldiers. Their sins could be erased if they died in defense of the church, and they would be guaranteed entry into heaven. A similar belief emerged in Islam, as we'll see in my next podcast. 
Washington Post journalist Ken Ringel describes some additional factors that led to the Crusades. European Christians, he said, had been making pilgrimages to the Holy Land since the 4th century. Generally, they were unmolested, but things changed abruptly in in, uh, the year 1009 when the Caliph of Egypt, its Muslim political and religious leader, in a fit of madness, ordered the destruction of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, where Christians believed Jesus had been entombed. For much of the rest of the century, Christian pilgrims were sporadically set upon, first by Arabs and by Muslim Turks, who replaced the Arabs as rulers of Syria and Palestine. In the year 1095, apparently in response to a request for aid from the Byzantine emperor against his Muslim enemies, Pope Urban II launched what later came to be called the First Crusade, urging Frankish knights to rescue the Holy Land from its infidel occupiers. The Pope was quoted by witnesses to his speech as referring to Muslims as a vile race and an unclean nation who had polluted Christian holy places. According to James Brundage, killing Muslims became a way for Christians to obtain remission of their sins. Moral rules rules governing the conduct of war were abandoned. Thomas Asperge says that no one was immune from attack by Christian crusaders. The captured Muslim soldiers and defenseless civilians were indiscriminately slaughtered, especially after the capture of Jerusalem in 1099. Even Jews in Germany were massacred by crusaders on their way to Palestine. Thus, ironically and tragically, a religion that began with the largely nonviolent teachings and, and example of Jesus evolved in its first millennium to the point where Christians were waging total indiscriminate war against their enemies. In the wake of a later series of devastating wars in Europe between Catholics and Protestants, Some Christians like Francisco de Vitoria concluded that mere difference of religion should no longer be considered just cause for war. Most Christians today would find total war morally repugnant, of course, especially if waged in the name of God. Some even continue in the ancient path of pacifism in obedience to Jesus' sayings on love of enemies and non-retaliation against evil. But total holy war against infidels also remains a continuing temptation for Christians. This is Dave Perry, director of the Practical Ethics Institute. In my next podcast, I'll explore the Islamic tradition. Thanks for listening.